0: There are risks in everything we do Eating our breakfast Driving a car Or in the case of today's guest Guiding people up the highest mountains in the world But no matter what it is There's one theme
1: we we talk a lot that there is no getting rid of the risk but it's certainly our job as guides and as a guide company to minimize or mitigate as much risk as we can and then try to clearly explain those risks that we can't take away Um,
0: whether it's food poisoning or a car accident or mountaineering mistakes the risk can't be eliminated
1: In 2004, I actually had an accident where my co guide died while guiding with me in Nepal. And uh, that loss, where he essentially fell off a ledge from a really silly mistake less than 10 feet from me, really brought hope that you could be. It's
0: a risky business. Welcome to Mountain Meister.
1: Who are the Mountain Meisters?
0: Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one
1: single focus.
0: Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it.
1: You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Hello,
0: everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. My name is Ben Schenck, and today with me I have Adrian Ballinger. Adrian, thanks for joining us today, and congratulations on being named a Mountain
1: Meister. Thanks so much. Um, I'm happy to be here.
0: uh, You probably get this all the time. Do people ever say, Yo, Adrian, (laughs) like from Rocky?
1: (laughs) That was the whole story of my childhood. So I moved to the U.S. from England when I was seven, and the Rocky movies were just coming out, and it was – um. <laughs> I think it bordered on abuse. (laughs)
0: For our listeners, if you're you're not aware, Adrian is a woman in Rocky. So at the age of seven, Adrian, that must have been just traumatic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Now I enjoy it.
0: (laughs) In all seriousness, you have done some pretty cool things, including summoning Everest six times, twice in three weeks you've, yeah. you've skied two 8,000 meter peaks. I guess before I go on, how do you even ski an 8,000 meter peak?
1: <laughs> well, it's definitely not usually about powder skiing or, um, enjoyment. It has very little actually to do with skiing. It's more like technical descending on skis, I would say, Okay. but I love it. I'm a passionate skier. I grew up skiing. It, it's a huge part of my like day to day life whenever I can make it that. And so As I've more recently over the past few years had the opportunity to combine my skiing with my big mountain climbing, I I find it very challenging, really interesting, and I I love it. Cool. Yeah.
0: A little variety there. Um, You've also taken more than 100 clients up Everest with Alpenglow Expeditions. We'll talk a little bit about Alpenglow. You know, I guess this should come at the end of our discussion, but this is a long list of uh, credentials. What's next on the list? Do you have anything coming up in the future?
1: Uh, So, I actually, I leave for Nepal this Saturday, but that's more of a a business trip, working on logistics for some upcoming trips and also a big film job that we have there. Mm -hmm. Uh, My next big personal trip that I'm really pushing towards is next fall, uh... I've attempted to ski a mountain in Nepal called Makalu. It's the fifth tallest mountain in the world and it's never been skied. And in 2012, I made an attempt on the mountain and was ultimately unsuccessful. We skied from about 25,000 feet, but that still leaves 2,500 feet above us. And so I'm uh, working hard to go back next fall um, with the right pieces in place and the right team to try to actually ski it from the summit.
0: Very cool. We'll have to have you on the show again after that successful expedition. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounds good.
0: So Alpenglow is very interesting people in the climbing community talk about it a lot because one thing which differentiates you for our listeners a normal expedition to Everest takes two and a half months Adrian you are getting your clients to the top of Everest and back back is very important (laughs) in around one month that's right how are you doing this
1: so it's a combination of a number of different things and we started running trips like this in two thousand and twelve to the Himalaya and, and really it was a, a selfish pursuit. I'd say uh you know, I've been traveling internationally and guiding really nonstop full time for the last 16 years now. And so that means spending seven to eight months a year outside of the United States. And I absolutely love it, but certainly on a lot of these big mountain, high altitude expeditions is a lot of downtime. And as I found that I wanted to start striking more balance in my life and that means relationships and friendships and community and home and all those things in addition to playing in the big mountains I started trying to find ways to shorten my trips and uh One of the big changes is just that technology is getting better and better that we use in the mountains. Um, Some obvious examples of that are we now use really high-end weather forecasting, so we use a Swiss team of meteorologists Hmm. that traditionally um, predict weather for commercial airliners, so they're very familiar with weather up at 25,000 feet, 30,000 feet, so we actually hire them during our big mountain-like Everest trips and they predict weather for us. What that means is we're much less likely to go up high on the mountain when there's stormy weather or winds or things like that. So since we're not up there during the, those bad weather periods, we don't waste energy and we're able to much more effectively use our time, which shortens our trip.
0: So this is information that you have that other people may not have on the
1: mountain or, or haven't been willing to pay for. Uh-huh. Um, so hiring uh, uh, weather forecasters, meteorologists, is becoming more common. I'd say most high-end guide com- companies, commercial Companies now do it, um, but that's really a recent change in the last five years. And uh, still, I'd say 70% of climbers over on these big mountains don't do it because of the cost. Mm. So that's one example. I'd say the other sort of most important example of how we've been able to shorten the trips is we actually now ask our climbers to pre-acclimatize at home. So a company or item that you might have heard of is something called a hypoxico pre-acclimatization tent. And these have been popular in the last few years for endurance athletes, whether you're doing Ironmans or things like the Leadville 100 or the Hard Rock 100, these big ultra marathons or ultra races Mm -hmm. with high altitude components in the United States, Um, they started utilizing these tents to uh, pre-acclimatize themselves before doing these races or to increase essentially their ability to move oxygen through their bloodstreams. And uh, we started experimenting along with some other climbers around 2010, 2011, and found that they were super effective for helping climbers to acclimatize before they leave the United States. So now our climbers spend between, depends on the trip, or for an Everest trip, they spend eight weeks sleeping in the tent before they leave their home, (laughs) and that enables us to go directly to about 18,000 feet. So we skip a lot of the sort of downtime that happens in the first three or four weeks of an expedition.
0: So I have to say, and I'm sure you get this a lot, so I I can't imagine that you haven't had to answer this before, (laughs) but are you taking the easy way out? Do people say that?
1: Uh, people do ask that, and to to me my my answer is definitely not like our members and myself, we still take every step of our trip, so every step along the track we do every step of the climb we 're not skipping sections of the climb by say helicoptering up the mountain so we 're doing it all we 're just doing it all faster, and uh we're we 're taking out a lot of the waiting and downtime and suffering, and for some people that Purity of suffering is very, very important to their experience and I am all for people still having that. Um but I don't think it's essential to every experience. Yeah, it's an efficient process, it sounds like. That's that's right. Efficiency mm-hmm. has been, I feel like a life goal for me uh in everything I do, and that certainly carries over to these trips.
0: Yeah. So you do a lot of guiding. I'm wondering do you remember the first time that you guided somebody up a mountain and how that was different from more personal endeavors?
1: Yeah, you know, so I grew up um, hiking and, and playing in New England. I, I was based in Massachusetts or I lived in Massachusetts from when I was seven years old until I went to college. And uh, I, I remember in that childhood time always being sort of the the weakest climber and hiker in the White Mountains, mm. the... Um, And just learning so much generally from these older kids, like I didn't even have a driver's license and I was going with older kids, um, hiking the White Mountains up in New Hampshire. And a lot of times we were trying to go in the winter and that sort of definitely adds to risk and things like that. And I always felt out of my element. And then I... I went to school in D.C., and uh, the school I went to in D.C. had an outdoor leadership program that was being run by this sort of well-known climber named Chris Warner, who's done a lot of 8,000-meter peak climbs. He owns climbing gyms on the East Coast. And, uh uh, through that that program, he offered me essentially to become an intern in his company, and I actually went to Ecuador as a 17 year old for my first 20,000 foot peaks with him. Mm. And it was really through his mentorship that I found myself shifting from uh, just needing so much and being so reliant to figuring out how to rely on myself and be confident in the big mountains, and then to be able to start offering my experience and skills to other people. And I just loved it. It was through my time in university that I really figured out that teaching was going to be a part of whatever I did. I had no idea it was going to be in the mountain realm, um, but I I knew I loved that feeling.
0: We've talked to other people about mentorship. It's such an interesting and integral piece of mountaineering. We talked to Mark Ritchie about mentorship and how that's played. That's number 54 about that. Meister fans, if you want to go hear that, listen to episode number 54. Mentorship is obviously, there's obviously parallels between your business and mentorship there and then mentorship and mountaineering. And you talk a lot about that in numerous articles. I will post those to Adrian's Meister profile page for our listeners. Adrian talks about risk and how that applies to his business as well. Also other things like teamwork but adrian while there are parallels there are also some differences and the first thing that comes to my mind is weighing risk versus reward when we talk about downside risk in mm. business we're talking about losing some money maybe maybe an ego blow if you fail <laughs> in mountaineering the downside risk is death and i would say that death is a little bit worse than those other things that i mentioned before do you find yourself taking bigger risks in your business ventures just because they don't seem like a big deal compared to mountaineering risk
1: huh I, you know i think it's it's changed a lot for me over the years i guess uh you know i think for for many years, and maybe this is essential as a as a young climber trying to build experience, but for, for many years I think I, I talked about the risk of death and accidents and that sort of thing, and I, I truly never believed it would happen to me. Mm. Um or even to a partner or a close friend or something like that. And so you know, for from, from many years, it just didn't even calculate for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2004, I actually had a, a, an accident where my co-guide uh, died while guiding with me in Nepal. And uh, he was a good friend. He had a family. He was a very talented climber and guide. And uh, that loss where he essentially fell off a ledge from a really silly mistake less than 10 feet from me, um, you know, really brought home that you can be very very good and there are still very clear risks that um, you know we can manage so much but but the reality is there and so um, that's not really an answer to your question mm-hmm.
0: but uh, it's so, interesting though thank yeah. you for telling that
1: yeah, yeah yeah absolutely so you know so risk for me I'd say since that accident in 2004 has become much more real and I would say I am very very conservative in my mountain playing time, um, especially when I'm working with people who have hired me to minimize that risk. Mm -hmm. You know, we we talk a lot that there is no getting rid of the risk, but it's certainly our job as guides and as a guide company to minimize or mitigate as much risk as we can and then try to clearly explain those risks that we can't take away. Mm -hmm. Um, But I you know, we as guides, we we turn around a lot, we go down a lot, we back off a lot, and and I really believe that's our job. I, you know, we were we were talking about mentors, and one of the one of the things I was taught when I was 19 years old by Chris Warner, the, this uh, this climber that I mentioned earlier, um, he always said that our clients were not our clients. The clients we should be thinking about were our clients' moms. Yes, and if you made your decision, sort of remembering what. You know, that mom doesn't care who summited. They don't care how rad you were. They care that you come home. And it's, it's lived with me for 20 years, and it's still a part of when I start, you know, not being sure about my decision-making, that, that memory comes back.
0: I tell you what, you are going to be my mother's favorite mountain meister. <laughs> she listens to every one of these and i, I think she's gonna like you adrian
1: <laughs> <laughs> great <laughs> i need the mom support yeah
0: yeah exactly uh another topic it would be goal setting and goal setting has so many parallels in mountaineering and in business obviously we've talked to athletes about this on our show and how you know goal setting is very important because setting them high and at the right level can help you discover your potential but on the flip side not setting them high enough we tend to go as far as we need to go to achieve that goal and stop there i'm curious if you have any thoughts on this and like how do you properly set your goals
1: Uh, yeah i think mountaineering and big mountain climbing are funny because naturally once you've climbed once you try to figure out how to go higher or Mm -hmm. bigger it's such
0: a tangible goal
1: it's so tangible and so clear about what what makes it more difficult Um, Mm. and so climbers have a really natural progression i think even rock climbing it's very similar as you go in harder grades and things Mm -hmm. like that but i think I think it's just so important to find something that inspires you. So Emily, my girlfriend, and I talk about this a lot. Like if you only focus on grades or height, it ends up not having enough meaning. And so for me, like I mentioned Makalu earlier and going back to that mountain, it's because like I looked at all 14 of the biggest 8,000, the biggest peaks in the world, the 8,000 meter peaks, and Makalu, just the photos of it, it's just so like rowdy and mean and (laughs) scary and it's just it's inspired me and it's lived with me for years before I finally got on it for the first time in 2012 and it beat me down in 2012 and that was on a trip while I was guiding a commercial group and you know ultimately I made the decision like okay the next time I'm going to go back and it's going to be a personal trip like I really want to focus 100% on me and my sort of, like, relationship with this mountain.
0: Yeah, yeah, cool. I, it's just the skiing thing. Nobody has skied Everest, right?
1: Everest has been skiing, Oh, it actually. has been. So, okay. um, uh, there's a few different people who have done it in in slightly different styles, and there's lots of discussion of what constitutes a full ski descent? Do you uh-huh. need to keep your skis on from the top from the bottom? Can you use ropes? So, you know, some might say that there's never been a pure ski descent from top to bottom. But in my opinion, I, I think it's been skied. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Kit Delarier, Rob Delarier, and Jimmy Chin were an American group that went there a few years ago and did mostly a complete descent in, in pretty good style. Cool. So,
0: for the listeners, you heard Adrian mention Emily, his girlfriend there. We had Emily on in episode number 56, a fantastic episode. Uh, we talked a lot about luck. I highly encourage you to check that out. Anyway, Adrian's Emily's, or sorry, Emily is Adrian's girlfriend and I want to talk about that relationship a little and uh, don't worry Adrian I won't get too personal if that's (laughs) all right with you. (laughs) Absolutely. So, So we talk about your risk appetite and Emily's a professional rock climber. You are a professional guider. Both are pretty dangerous things but you love what you do so much. This sounds like quite the conundrum for a relationship like this you you want the person who you love to do what they love except at the same time you want to protect them is that a burden for you
1: it's uh i'd say it's a constant um challenge and discussion point for us so actually actually the timely questions i drove emily to the airport this morning to leave for a 2 month trip to burma Um, which has recently opened up to sort of exploration and climbers and things like that. And her and a team are trying to um, go and climb the two tallest peaks in Burma and try to figure out which one is actually higher. Mm. So um, she's going on a really unusual trip to a part of the world where there's no rescue support or very little communications, all of the things that we think about when we think about risk, a lot of unknowns. And uh, so, you know, we've been talking a a lot about what both of us are planning on doing this fall and... And, and how much risk there is and and how we can support each other while also, just like you said, um, you know, I, I think it comes down to trust. I have an incredible amount of trust in Emily's skills mm-hmm. and also in her desire to live a long life. And mm-hmm. uh, certainly our relationship hopefully is a part of that. And so I believe she's going to make smart decisions and that um, – you you know, she's going to mitigate risk because she wants to come home and play and do all the things we do and do so many future adventures. Yeah. Um, But of course I worry about her when she's gone. And I think certainly that goes in the other direction as well. And when we are on these, especially personal trips where we're trying to push our personal boundaries, it's, uh, Yeah, it's definitely on my mind.
0: This is such an interesting parallel. I just can't help but think, you know, when couples leave each other, it's have a safe flight, honey. And, And with you guys, it's like, you know, the flight is the safe part. You need to worry about what happens between the flight there and the flight back.
1: Right. I mean, she's got like an anti-venom kit for the 15 different poisonous snakes in the jungle of Burma. It's oh. like, well, good, good luck with that. <laughs> I'm just glad I'm not on that trip.
0: <laughs> so, and you guys have also done some pretty amazing things together. A lot of uh, mountaineering. You were both in an iPad uh, piece. Yeah. Very cool. You're, you're basically a power couple.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly. Uh, I don't know about power couple, but I know we both absolutely love what we do. And I, I think we found a really unique combination in that we both play in this industry or this sport, the the outdoor industry or you know, climbing. And yet we have really different expertises. Mm-hmm. Mine is really big mountain high altitude climbing and skiing. And Emily's is really incredibly gymnastic climbing, rock climbing, steep climbing. And then together over the last two and a half years it's just been wild that you know, I feel like we're each encouraging and mentoring each other in our our specific fields. And at the same time, we still break apart and go our own ways and try to excel. And that's been amazing. I mean, I'm 38 years old and I'm climbing harder rock today than I've ever climbed in my life, even though I've been rock climbing since I was 12 years old. And so much of that has to do with her support and inspiration and coaching. And I think she would say the same thing about her uh, big mountain climbing and skiing and things like that
0: so you do a lot of things you climb mountains you're doing the rock climbing i think i saw you do some sort of ultra marathon recently
1: that was almost a a mistake or (laughs) an error of judgment so i i would say i'm a a really avid recreational runner it's probably the thing i enjoy doing most for for my training when i'm home Mm -hmm. um but to me that means like one hour to perhaps two hour runs, Mm -hmm. maybe 15 miles at the most. And I was asked to speak at an event down in L.A., um, to kick off this sort of ultra race 40 miles 12,000 vertical feet and uh, <laughs> I, you know I was doing this talk and or I was going to do this talk for one of my sponsors and it just seemed so ridiculous the organizers had asked me to talk about endurance and suffering and then I was going to go talk about that and then I wasn't going to do the event Agre- um, I so Agree. I agree with of- this logic <laughs> <laughs> so, I sort of roped myself into it, but I've never done more than 20 miles in my life. And uh, I, I went out and, and ran 40 and had a, a good time for some of it and had an absolutely <laughs> awful time for some of it. And then I proceeded to miss my flight the next day out of LAX because I literally couldn't walk from the curb to my gate in time to catch my flight. Um, oh, Wow. So
0: I learned a lot. A learning experience. Maybe don't recommend our listeners some ultra marathon running gear, but we do like to get gear recommendations from all of our guests. And I would say we don't always talk about gear on Mountain Meister, but when we do, we prefer that it comes from somebody who's summited every six times and has run a successful guiding company. Give our listeners a piece of gear that they just have to have.
1: Oh shoot! I want I I want to give you so many. Um, <laughs> you, you can know, do two. My... You can two. <laughs> okay, I want two. That yeah. sounds great. Okay, so so one of them just because we've been talking about Emily and Everest and all these things. So the the way I met Emily was actually on Everest at Camp Two at twenty one thousand five hundred feet. She was on a team. I was on a team. And everywhere I go, I carry a little handheld espresso machine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by a company called Handpresso. It's this awesome system. It looks like a little bike pump connected to a little espresso pod thing, where you put the grounds and uh, makes incredible espresso. You pump it to 16 bar, the whole thing. And so I was going and I was going to bring an espresso to, to Conrad Anchor, who was Emily's team leader and sort of a well-known climber and a friend of mine. And when I went to bring it to him, I saw her and ended up giving her the espresso instead. And that's how we actually met. And so you know, carrying that machine everywhere, I think is absolutely essential. It also feeds my caffeine addiction.
0: <laughs> I love so. everything about that story, <laughs> all the way down to the name of the product, which is phenomenal. Handpresso, whoever, whoever thought of
1: funny. that. I, it's worth finding. I think you're the first interviewer I've ever told that story to. So <laughs> okay. there you go. It's public now. I hope it's okay. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, if I was going to recommend another you know I'm uh, obviously in the midst of um, packing for trips right now and uh, Mohamed who is one of my sponsors now has a 900 fill ultralight down jacket it's called the Quasar and uh You know, it's just one of those things. It sounds so obvious, these ultralight down jackets that every company sort of makes one now, but it truly is this piece of gear that just never leaves my side. It's my travel pillow. It's in the big mountains with me. It's in every city. So I think that's something that we didn't have five or eight years ago, these ultralight thin down jackets, Mm -hmm. and now they really are just a part of everyone's kit.
0: Very cool. For our listeners, we will throw both of those lovely pieces of gear on Adrian's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. To wrap things up, Adrian, let's close with a a pretty meaningful topic. You do a lot of cool things, like I've said. You inspire a lot of people. I'm curious, and I ask a lot of our guests these because it evokes different answers. Who inspires you if you're inspiring all these people?
1: I, I, I've had so many great mentors and also inspirations, but I I definitely think a lot these days and especially recently I this was sort of a different difficult week for the ski mountaineering uh community. Uh there was an avalanche on Shisha where that killed two well known ski mountaineers and then there were two avalanches in Chile yesterday that killed three American skiers, professional skiers. And uh so, you know, I think about so much about risk and everything we've been talking about during this show. And so when I think about inspirations and who inspires me, it's it's the guys who have been doing this for a lifetime and they're still alive and they're still enjoying it and still pushing and whatever that means to them. And here in Tahoe, we have this just incredible You know, mentor to so many of us younger climbers. His name's Dave Nettle. He's been putting up first ascents all over the Sierra forever. He travels internationally. He's done loads of stuff in China and India, Nepal. Uh, He spends a lot of time in the Alps. And, you know, he he just does it every year exactly on his terms. I, I don't think he'd even be considered a professional athlete. He's not sponsored and yet he crushes it and every day is out there laughing and having fun at the local crag when he's not on these big trips. So that's my inspiration is trying to figure out how to do this for a lifetime.
0: Very cool. Adrian, thank you so much for joining. It's been great having you today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Great questions. This is really fun.
0: For our listeners, if you'd like to find out more about Adrian Go to alpenglowexpeditions.com. There's a bio of him there. You can also find out more about the company. We will also have resources from today's episode, everything we discussed, even a quote from you, Adrian, which you don't even know that you said yet, but you said something amazing somewhere in this episode, and I'll find it. (laughs) Go to our website, mtnmeister.com to find that. Enjoy the rest of your day, and best of luck in your future endeavors, Adrian.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Meister fans, thanks for tuning in to that episode with Adrian Ballinger from Alpenglow Expeditions. A neat discussion on risk versus reward there, something which I find really interesting. You know, normally when we think about risk and reward, your reward should really compensate you for the risk that you're willing to accept. In the case of podcasts, it seems like the reward is disproportionately high. For the risk that you take So if you agree with that evaluation Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes Go to the search bar Type in MTN Meister And you'll find us You can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio And just about every other platform If you're a daredevil And you just need more risk in your life Here's something else you can do Sign up for our newsletter A little bit more risk You're going to have to give us your email address But the reward is high too we at Mountain Meister will send you fun little blurbs to get you thinking. Last week's newsletter was about the comfort zone and what a comfort zone actually is. We'll also have an episode spotlight, some sweet deals, and an update from one of our Mountain Meisters. We call this Keeping Up with the Meisters. It's like keeping up with the Kardashians. Or maybe not. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I am your host, Ben Shank.